Are we ready to go? Title of the message tonight is The Aunt Susan Theory. That's a strange title, isn't it? The Aunt Susan Theory. Doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? Sounds more like a baking program or some recipe, doesn't it? All right, come with me please to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I just want to read a couple of verses from verse 3 of 1 Timothy, the second chapter. Paul says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Now, a recent survey taken among evangelicals, when I say evangelicals, I'm talking about people who would purport to believe that the Bible is true, believe in Christ as Savior, and also Protestants in America. And it shows an alarming and dangerous trend that should concern every Bible-believing Christian. David Campbell co-authored a book called American Grace, how religion divides and unite us, unites us. And it was a survey, it was written on the basis of a survey among 3,000 uh, evangelical Protestant believers. No devout, no people of faith, yet their tolerance was to the extent that most of them believed that good people, good people will go to heaven despite having whatever religious affiliation they may have, that they will still go to heaven. And among the faith surveyed, 83% of evangelical Protestants agreed that good people of other religions can also go to heaven. Another finding is that 30% of those who affiliate it with a religion says that one's belief determines eternal life. 29% says that eternal life depends on one action, and 10% believe it is a combination of both. Now, I don't know what the results would be if that same survey was taken among evangelical Protestant people in the country where we live, but I suspect it probably would be a little bit better than that, but surprisingly, it mightn't be much better than that. And you'll understand why I say that as we go on. And what this really truly shows us is that somewhere along the line, the truth of Christianity has been seriously watered down. We so do not want to offend anybody that we water the truths of the gospel down to almost nothing. The exclusivity of Christ's salvation is still a very controversial subject. 
Jesus as the way and the truth and the life does not go down very well in a postmodern society. The fact that Jesus said, not only is he's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life, but the fact that he says that there is no other way to the Father except through him. Again, in a postmodern culture, that is increasingly being dismissed. Now, of course, the idea is not new, even in evangelical circles. Over the years, a number of evangelicals, some who were quite prominent, has embraced something called universalism. And universalism is simply this. It is the belief that all people, of all persuasions, of belief or no belief, that all humanity eventually will go to heaven. They will be saved. And even to take to the extreme that even Lucifer himself will be saved. You say, how could any right, rational, thinking person believe that? Well, many do. Sadly, tragically. The idea that faith alone in Christ alone for salvation is seriously under attack today. And the sad truth of it is that many, many Bible-believing Christians has no understanding of the doctrine of salvation whatsoever. I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, and that's all I need to know. Well, you need to know a little bit more than that, I'm afraid. Because there's a lot of stuff out there that's completely and utterly wrong. And if you don't know right from wrong, if you don't know the authentic, how are you going to know the fake? Did you hear me? If you don't know the authentic, how are you going to know the fake if it comes along? However, as Campbell explains about the numbers in his survey, there's another explanation as to why many good people will believe will go, they believe will go to heaven. And that brings us to the Aunt Susan theory. <laughs> Aunt Susan, he said, is that lovely, nice, do-good person who is loved by all, and you know that if anybody's going to go to heaven, it's going to be Aunt Susan. And everybody knows an Aunt Susan, don't they? The trouble is, Aunt Susan mightn't be saved. Aunt Susan may not be a believer. Aunt Susan may believe in an entirely different religion. But if she's good and decent and nice and compassionate and wholesome, she must go to heaven. That's the Aunt Susan theory. Now, there's a great danger, even though we may not consciously think about that often, but there's a great danger when it comes to our families and our nearest and dearest. There's a great danger that we could slip into that error too and look at the person's lifestyle and conclude if it's that good, in fact, you may say, I know an Aunt Susan whose life is even better than some Christians I know. Therefore, they're going to go to heaven. Now, most believers that Campbell surveyed actually thought that and said that. And the thinking goes something like this, you see, that God would never condemn a good person to a lost eternity. I wouldn't do it, and if I wouldn't do it, surely God himself wouldn't do it. See, this is where it gets very, very dangerous. 
And this is where we lose sight of the great truths and foundation of the gospel. In other words, because it doesn't seem just and it doesn't seem fair, therefore it cannot be. And if a person is decent and they're honorable and they're quote-unquote good, therefore surely even God wouldn't condemn that person to lost eternity. But you see, what we're doing there is we are placing God's sense of justice alongside our sense of justice. And we're saying that it's equal to it or maybe even better than it. In other words, if I wouldn't condemn Aunt Susan to be lost, then surely God could not disagree with my sense of fairness and fair play. Now, you mightn't actually say that, but there's a danger that you could think it and miss the whole point of the cross, miss entirely the whole central issue of Calvary. But the truth is that God's sense of justice is infinitely higher than either yours or mine. And that God's love towards Aunt Susan is infinitely greater than even your love or mine. And yet, if Aunt Susan, if that good person, when they die, if they don't die in Christ, then they will be eternally and forever lost. That is the clear and the plain teaching of Scripture. And we better not forget that. And sadly, a large portion of the church is forgetting that. And that's where it becomes dangerous. But what about just before they die? What about if Aunt Susan, that good person, man or woman, that next door neighbor that you admire, that person in your extended family that you think is just a wonderful person, and to all intents and purposes is a wonderful person, what if they, just before they die, what if in their dying breath they breathe that prayer, Oh God, forgive me, save me. Well, the grace and mercy of God is such that God will not reject that prayer. God will hear that prayer, and God will answer that prayer. Now, you can't depend on getting that opportunity. Nobody knows. You know, I've done dozens and dozens and dozens of funerals, and I've never preached to anybody into heaven or anybody out of hell in my life. If I didn't know and there was no testimony left, then I didn't say, and I couldn't say. Maybe they did. Maybe they got a final chance. Who knows? I don't know, but I couldn't say they did, and I wouldn't say they did. You say, David, maybe that would offend somebody. Well, so be it. I can't offend the Lord and what he's done at Calvary. Here's the truth of it. You cannot be a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, a Hare Krishna, or any other religion you want to face. You cannot be that and be a Christian at the same time. You just cannot be. Christianity is exclusive. It's a one and only. Christianity only knows one way. 
it only upholds one Savior, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, the trouble is that that sounds very narrow and intolerant. And this is where the crunch comes. In order for us to appear not to be narrow and intolerant, there's a danger we blur the picture. And we want to appeal to everybody and offend no one. And great tracts of the church has done that to the point where they're leaving those churches in droves. It's so wishy-washy and watered down, there's nothing in it. And even the people going to it knows that. No, we must be true to what the Bible says. Is it narrow? Yes, it is narrow. In fact, the Bible declares it's narrow. Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and few there are who find it. That's the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he himself said, this is a narrow way. It's not a broad way. Listen, if this was a broad way, everybody in this town would be on this way, but they aren't. In fact, it's a minority of people in this town or any other town in this nation that's on the narrow way. And that proves the point, doesn't it? But what about tolerance? Well, being tolerant shouldn't mean accepting everything without question or not opposing any viewpoint or disagreeing with anything that's contrary. But being tolerant means that we can disagree, we can oppose that viewpoint, but in humility and in kindness and with respect. Remembering that it was the Holy Spirit who opened our blinded eyes to see the truth. Because if our blinded eyes had not been opened to see these truths, then we would have been the same. Now, of course, how you approach people and what you say to people can make you sound absolutely awful and turn people off. And sometimes it's not the truth that you say that turns them off. Often it is, but sometimes it isn't. It's the way you present it turns them off. So we have to be careful how we do that, but never to water down the truth of the cross. You know, there's a lovely verse over in 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 6. <laughs> and Paul here is writing to the church at Corinth. Remember these people come out of rank paganism rank idolatry and all kinds of perversions. In verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6, says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But... You were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. <clears throat> what a difference. And we were all of those things, but 
Now you're justified. You're sanctified. You see, if it hadn't been for the Holy Spirit coming to us, we were in somewhere in that big long list and beyond it. But it was the Holy Spirit who opened our eyes and showed us the truth and helped us respond to the truth of the Word of God. And so we've got to understand whenever we're sharing our faith with others that if they're blind to the truth, they're blind to it. Unless the Holy Spirit opens their eyes, they've got to understand where they're coming from. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 and 11 spoke about the offense of the cross. The cross offends. It's designed to offend. And it certainly is an offense. The cross drives a great stake into the heart of the Aunt Susan theory, which is that our goodness, our decency, our acts of kindness, our generosity even, our integrity, all of that, our niceness, can save us. The cross drives a stake right into the very heart of that theory. The cross reminds us that there's absolutely nothing that you or I could ever do to save ourselves. No act of righteousness or kindness or generosity or compassion or mercy or any other good thing, none of it can save an eternal soul. That's why the book of James, James says in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point is guilty of all of it. In other words, God's righteousness, God's holy standard is so high that if we just offend by breaking one part of it, God holds us guilty as if we broke all of it. You say that's not fair. No, that is fair because God is perfect. You say, but how in the world then could I ever keep all of God's law? The fact is you can't. You can't. And that's why we were condemned. We couldn't keep God's law. The law condemned us, judged us as guilty. But Jesus came along and he kept God's law perfectly. Never offended in one single point. And then he paid the price on the cross that we couldn't pay. He paid that price for sin, which was death. And he went to the cross and he died for us that we might get his life. His perfect life of righteousness, that His righteousness may be imparted to us. See, this is the wonderful thing about the gospel. But you know, that offends so many people. I have done this. If you tell people, even in the nicest way possible, if you tell Aunt Susan, who's that lovely, generous, beautiful person, that you wouldn't want to offend in any way. If you tell Aunt Susan, hey, listen, as good as you are, just one single sin will condemn you as lost forever. That's offensive. And you know what? We're scared of telling people that in case they'd be offended. But you know what? If you tell somebody that, and by the help of the Holy Spirit, if that very thought 
comes into their mind and into their heart, and they see in that moment there is nothing I can do to save myself, then and only then will they begin to look for a Savior. Because <laughs> if you can save yourself, you don't need a Savior. Sure you don't. If you can save yourself, then Jesus didn't need to go to the cross. The fact that he went proves that we cannot save ourselves. We needed him to die for us. Matthew 26, 31, Jesus has shared the Last Supper with his disciples. He's about to go out into the garden where he's going to be arrested. In hours' time, he's going to be crucified. And he looked at his disciples, and you know what he said to them? All you shall be offended because of me this night. He knew that the cross was going to be such an offense to them. Now we understand the reason why. Because the cross was for criminals. The Romans crucified criminals. And they did it publicly, unashamedly. And it was a horrible death. And it was an awful, terrible shame to be hanging on a cross with everybody looking at you. And maybe a sign around your neck that you're a criminal. And Jesus knew that within a few hours, he'd be hanging on a cross. And all of those disciples would be ashamed, offended, cut to the quick, as we say. Because there is their Messiah, their hero. And he's dying like a criminal on a cross, beaten, whipped, scourged, nailed to a cross. You can understand why they were offended. And Jesus told them they would be, didn't they? In Matthew 13, 57, it says, The scribes and the Pharisees were offended by him. They were continually offended by him because he cut across the grain of all of their religiosity and got right to the heart of the question, didn't they? Let me just read another little verse or two from from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You don't even need to turn to this. It's very familiar to you, I'm sure. Verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, bring to nothing the understanding of the, understanding of the prudent, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It sounded so foolish. How could that man dying as a criminal on a cross, how could he possibly be the Savior not only of us, but the Savior of the world. It sounded foolishness. The Jews requested a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks just utter foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We must keep the cross to the fore. 
We must never be ashamed of the cross. We must never water down the message of the cross. Whether that's public like I'm doing tonight or whether that's privately like you do in your witness and testimony. Somewhere or other we've got to bring people to the cross. Now in this world that we live, people live by preference rather than by principle. They do what they prefer to do. They live how they prefer to live rather than they do what principle dictates or what principle demands that we should live. And I'm talking about Bible principle. So you can easily see why people demiss the cross. Well, they say, well, well, that's just a preference. And you've chosen that preference. That's for you, but it's not for me. Because it's a preference. Well, it isn't a preference. It's a principle. It's an eternal principle. It's one that if we refuse it, we do it with the gravest of consequences. Our whole eternal future depends on what we do with it. So it's not just a preference. Christ and His cross is not multi-choice. It's not, I'll tick this box if I prefer it. It's not press the red button, button now for an alternative. No. Christ's cross is something that you either accept or you reject. You embrace it or you resist it. It's death or life. It's light or darkness. It's heaven or hell. It's as clear cut as that. God says through the cross, you can have your sin or you can have my son, but you can't have both. It's as clear and as decisive as that. And so the Aunt Susan theory doesn't work. Sure it doesn't. And somewhere perhaps among our family circle or extended family circle or among our friends even, there's maybe somebody that you're struggling to witness to because they're such a good and nice person. And you feel if I say anything to them, they'll be greatly offended. And they'll probably say, well, I'm, I'm a decent person. I, I live my life and, you know, I don't hurt anybody or I pay 20 shillings to the pound and all the rest of it. That's no terminology, isn't it? And sometimes we just let it slip past until it's too late. Until it's too late. A.W. Tozer, I'm going to close here in a moment. A.W. Tozer, of a generation past, he was converted at 18 years old in 1915. Four years later, he became a pastor in America, Dr. Tozer. And then in 1950, he became the editor of the denomination he was in, their magazine. And really, he's more known for his writings than he is for his preaching. Although he was a tremendous preacher, very challenging, very gifted man. But he, he wrote much, and, and there's a whole library of books that he left behind that any student of Scripture will know A.W. Tozer. And I was just reading this afternoon, actually. I pulled one of his little books down from my library, and I just read a little article in it, which I think is apropos to what I'm sharing tonight. I'm going to close with this. And even though this was written <laughs> a few decades ago, but you'll see that what I'm saying tonight was a problem even then. 
it's probably a bigger problem now than then, and it's probably a bigger problem in another decade than it is now. Here's what he said. The cross of Christ is the most revolutionary thing ever to appear among men. The cross of all Roman times knew no compromise. It never made concessions. It won all its arguments by killing its opponent and silencing him for good. It spared not Christ, but slew him the same as the rest. He was alive when they hung him on that cross and completely dead when they took him down six hours later. That is the cross, that was the cross the first time it appeared in Christian history. After Christ was risen from the dead, the apostles went out to preach his message, and what they preached was the cross. And whenever they went into the wide world, they carried the cross. And the same revolutionary power went with them. The radical message of the cross transformed Saul of Tarsus and changed him from a persecutor of Christians to a tender believer and an apostle of faith. Its power changed bad men into good ones. It shook off the long bondage of paganism and altered completely the whole moral and mental outlook of the Western world. All this it did and continued to do so as long as it was permitted to remain what it had been originally, a cross. Its power departed when it was changed from a thing of death to a thing of beauty. When men made of it a symbol, hung it round their necks as an ornament, or made its outline before their faces a magic sign to ward off evil, then it became at best a weak emblem and at worst a positive fetish. As such, it is revered today by millions who know absolutely nothing about its power. I've maybe told you this before, but years ago I was knocking on doors. I say this to my shame now. I was knocking on doors and I knocked on this door and it was a big fancy house up way up the street opposite where Tony lives there. And uh, this guy came out and it was a summer evening and he had, had a, you know, like a, a vest on and uh, he had a big, 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 big silver cross around his neck. You know, a big thick chain. And so I, I started to share with him at Christ and he didn't like it. And he got very uptight and very upset that I was sharing with Christ. I says, oh, I'm sorry. I saw the cross around your neck. I thought you were a Christian. Well, that wasn't very nice. That wasn't very graceful. Sure it wasn't. That's the opposite of what I told you to do tonight. But I was just a young Christian then. I was enthusiastic. I was zealous. Hadn't got much knowledge. Hadn't got much sense. <laughs> wasn't very humble about it, was I? Well, anyway, don't you ever do that. The cross effects its ends by destroying one established pattern, the victims, and creating another pattern, its own. Thus, it has always had its way. It wins by defeating its opponent and imposing its will upon him. It always dominates. It never compromises, never dickers or or confers, never surrenders a point for the sake of peace. It cares not for peace. It cares only to end its opposition as fast as possible. With perfect knowledge of all of this, Christ said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and follow me. So the cross not only brings Christ's life to an end, it ends also the first life, the old life, and every one of his true followers, of every one of his true followers. It destroys the old pattern, the Adam pattern in the believer's life, and brings it to an end. Then the God who raised Christ from the dead raises the believer and a new life begins. This, and nothing less, is true Christianity. Though we cannot but recognize the sharp divergence 
of this conception from that held by the rank and file of evangelicals today, but we dare not qualify our position. The cross stands high above the opinions of men, and to that cross all opinions must come at last for judgment. We must do something about the cross, as what, as, and one of two things only we can do. We either flee it or we die upon it. And if we should be so foolhardy as to flee, then we shall by that act put away the faith of our fathers and make Christianity something other than it is. Then we shall have left only an empty language of salvation and the power will depart with our departure from the true cross. If we are wise, we will do what Jesus did, endure the cross and despise its shame for the joy that is set before us. To do this is to submit the whole pattern of our lives to be destroyed and built up again by the power of an endless life. And we shall find that it is more than poetry, more than sweet hymnody, an elevated feeling. The cross will cut into our lives where it hurts most, sparing neither nor our carefully sparing neither us nor our carefully cultivated reputations. It will defeat us and bring us bring our selfish lives to an end. And only then can we rise in fullness of life to establish in a pattern of living a holy, new and free life and full of good works. Almost finished. The changed attitude toward the cross that we see in modern orthodoxy proves not that God has changed, nor that Christ has eased up in His demand that we carry the cross. It means rather that the current Christianity has moved away from the standards of the New Testament. So have we far we have moved away indeed that it may take nothing short of a new reformation to restore the cross to its right place in the theology and the life of the church. Now there is a man of perception. There is a man in his generation saw that the church was moving away from the declaration of the cross. It was no longer central. It was on the periphery of Christian life. And there's a great, great danger. And this is why I'm saying this at the beginning of this year. There's a great, great danger and we are moving away from having the cross central in the life of the church and the life of the believer to somewhere out on the boundaries, on the perimeters. And once we lose the central place of the cross, we've lost the very heart of Christianity. And it's not worth its salt. And we just go through the motions. But if we can keep the cross to the center... And if everything we do and everything we say and everything we sing and everything we pray and every time we witness, if we have the cross to the center of it all, God will be pleased because then we are raising up His Son, aren't we? And if I be lifted up, what does He say? I will draw men unto myself, but we've got to lift them up. And the only way He's going to be lifted up is through the cross in our lives. Somebody said to the man that's carrying a cross, He's going to his death. He's not coming back. He's going to die. And every one of us that are born again of God's Spirit that has went to the cross, we have died a death to the old life. And we're not turning back, sure we're not. Amen. By the grace of God, there is no turning back. The old song says, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Should no one follow me, yet I will. Should no one come, yet I will follow. No turning back. Amen. So let us this year, in our thoughts and our prayers, and our preaching and all of this, let us be central and true to the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen.
And let's try to reach men and women and boys and girls for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercies. We bless you, Lord, that you brought us to the place of the cross. But Lord, we thank you that you went to the cross for us. You shed your blood for us. You gave your life for us. And we thank you for that tonight. That could be tonight during this service. For all I know that every single one of you has been to the cross. You're born again of God's Spirit. You know Christ is your Savior. That's wonderful. Thank God for that. But who knows? Who knows? Only God knows. But if you haven't, and you haven't come to the cross, and you need to come to the cross, and no matter how lovely a person you may be, and I wouldn't doubt that you are, still not enough. You still got to come to the cross. Still got to receive Christ as your Savior. And if you would want to do that tonight, and if you want me to pray with you and help you, I would be very, very happy to do that. I wish I could just simply pray you into heaven, but I can't. You've got to make that choice. You've got to make that decision to come to the cross. I'll help you when you make that choice, but I can't do it for you. But if you want to tonight, you want to come to Christ, acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior, then would you let me know right now, just by slipping up your hand, putting it down again. I'm not going to ask you to stand or come to the front or anything like that, but just to let me know that you just want to join me in prayer. And then I would be very pleased at the close of this service to bring you to the foot of the cross. You can invite Christ into your life. That would be a wonderful way to start this new year. So in a moment we're going to pray. We're just going to be dismissed in a few moments, but I'm going to pray first. If you want to receive Christ,